The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Latino vote. How... Will the Latino vote go? Who will win the Latino vote? It is unknown. It is complex. It is nuanced, almost gnomic in its implied intricacies. The, it'll be Democrats. The Democrats will win the Latino vote. But this shows you why it's a bad question, or among the reasons it's a bad question, that answer doesn't tell you anything. Because even though Democrats will win, probably win what we call overwhelmingly, not as overwhelmingly as they once did. And the fact that Democrats will win the Latino vote in general doesn't tell you if they'll win enough of the Latino vote to push them over the top in close races against Republicans. That's what we really want to know. And that's what we don't know. But another reason it's a bad question is if a question always has an answer that mandates a disclaimer, you're probably asking the wrong question. And if you ask anyone who's supposedly an expert on the Latino vote, or actually an expert on the Latino or Hispanic vote, they will always have to say, as Politico's Sabrina Rodriguez says in this Georgetown University online forum, this I cannot emphasize enough that Latinos are not a monolith. If I had a dollar for every time that I feel like I have to say that, or I hear folks that that are focused on Latino voters say that, um, I would be very rich. Agreed. I could retire, maybe not on the dollar for every time someone says it's not a monolith, but definitely the publishing rights too. They're not a monolith. And what an insight. Latinos aren't a monolith. Maybe it's because also black people aren't a monolith and old people aren't a monolith and individuals contain multitudes and they themselves on a one by one basis aren't a monolith. No one's a monolith. Not even those black cuboids in 2001, A Space Odyssey, built by an unseen extraterrestrial species who are the earliest highly intelligent species to evolve in the Milky Way. Yeah, I know they're called monoliths, but when you really get to know them, you know, and pull them and check out the cross tabs, not a monolith. You know, they're worried about inflation, but would like to fund the war in Ukraine, not a monolith. So why do we do these segments? Why do we go in for this analysis, which has to have the disclaimers and then maybe also the recommendation? You know what they need to do, politicians need to do, is not just show up in the last five minutes and cut an ad in Spanish. I've heard that for the last 16 election cycles. Because, you know, even though we all say the Latino vote is not a monolith, the very premise of, quote, the Latino vote implies a monolith. And here is the truth. Once you norm for things like education, how many generations people have been here, religion, bilingualism in the home, the Latino vote is really like the Irish vote or many other white ethnic types of votes. Are Latinos white? Well, this is a big issue and sociologists study this and they say that gradually over time, Every ethnic group gets absorbed into whiteness, though this hasn't happened for black people or most black people. And that is an interesting area of study as well. But what we're seeing is that if you look at every ethnic group, they tend to act a little bit distinctly. And then as they become later generation ethnics, which is a sociological term, meaning their stock isn't being replenished from the motherland, once they become that, they become more close to the median less distinctive. What we're seeing now, not a monolith. Dan Baltz writing in the Washington Post, good article. He always does good articles. This one was on the Latino vote. He focused on Nevada, 
where Catherine Cortez Masto might lose re-election, somewhat because of slumping support from the Latino community. Cortez Masto is a Latina, the first Latina ever elected to the U.S. Senate. The article did not note that. But the fact that she may lose because she doesn't have huge support or as big support as she used to have in the Latino community tells me that the Latino vote is not just not a monolith. It isn't even primarily the voting identity of many voting Latinas, maybe even most. Here is Dan Ball's more adept version of the whole not a monolith disclaimer. Quote, this makes Latinos one of the most important constituencies in American politics, but the Latino vote defies easy categorization or simple description because it is demographically and geographically diverse. What might appeal to Latinos in one part of the country does not work in another. Agreed, agreed, and agreed. But still, we have to cover this phenomenon that we have to acknowledge. Yeah, it's really not a phenomenon, but let's pretend it is a phenomenon. Now, that, that whole thing, that is quite a phenomenon. The details of these stories are always interesting, but they're interesting because they're stories of how individuals that have a certain identity, but also other concerns like union member, college graduate, first generation, concerned about inflation, how those people are going to vote. Stories about how people are going to vote and how they make their decisions are always pretty interesting. The idea of the Latino vote, hmm, getting less interesting and less precise as years go by. Can we please be a little less reductive and a little more instructive? On the show today, I spiel about Kanye West and his very, very not nice statements to what do we attribute those sentiments. But first, Alan Dershowitz is out with, oh, I don't know, his 50th book. I do spiels. He writes books. This one is about the time that he defended Donald Trump in an impeachment inquiry and he won the vote of the Senate but lost the friendship and status of many of his contemporaries. The name of the book is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Alan Dershowitz up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. A phrase that I loathe is a man who needs no introduction because right afterwards they give you a lengthy introduction. I am going to stick to the promise of that phrase when I introduce my guest, Alan Dershowitz. His new book is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. I got one too. He's holding one up. Mr. Dershowitz, welcome to The Gist. Well, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. You talk about how principle has been replaced by partisanship. That's where you put the finger on where we're leaning now. But I wonder if you think that or you put partisanship as part or a manifestation of a deeper feeling, a more tribal feeling that goes back to humanity for millennia. 
Well, I'm sure it's part of that as well. Uh, but when I was growing up, there was much less uh, tribalism. Look, I, I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan and Rudy Giuliani was a New York Yankee fan and other people in Brooklyn. But, you know, when, when Jeter got up to bat, I, I applauded. Uh, when, when Aaron Judge gets up to bat, I'm rooting for him to hit another home run. Uh, but today, you know, you're either you're either a full fledged 100 percent left or full fledged 100 percent right. And there are rules. I'll give you an example. Recently, Catherine McKinnon, who was one of the darlings of the left, uh, you know, the Me Too movement and all of that got excoriated because she violated one of the major principles of the left. She actually is not anti-Israel. Mm-hmm. And if you're not anti-Israel, you're thrown out of the club. You can't be a member of the left without singling out Israel as the worst country in the world. You can be uh, pro-China, you can be pro-Russia, you can be anti-Ukraine, you can be anything. But God forbid you should say anything positive about Israel's right to exist. You're no longer on the left. Uh, when I defended uh, President Donald Trump, against an unconstitutional impeachment. I was not in favor of Trump. I wanted the right to vote against them, and I did it twice and do it a third time if he runs. But as soon as I said my interpretation of the Constitution is that the words treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors mean something, it means it has to be criminal-type behavior akin to treason and bribery, I was banned by the local library that had me every year speaking. They banned my books, libraries banning books. That's what's happened to principle and why partisanship, you're right, it goes deep back into humanity. But I thought it was over. I thought it was getting better. And then it just got worse. Yeah. So that's specifically what I wanted most to talk about, the impeachment and the arguments you made. Stipulated, he deserves a defense. Everyone deserves a defense. And if you could mount- Let me me stop you right there. I don't- don't, didn't do it because he deserves a defense. Um, I didn't have to take his case. It's the Constitution that deserves a defense. When I got up there, I never mentioned the name Trump in my whole argument. I talked about defending the Constitution. When Madison and Hamilton slaved over the words of the Constitution, they deliberately did not want to allow impeachment based on abuse of power or obstruction of Congress. They wanted it based on criminal type behavior. So I was there on behalf of the Constitution not on behalf of Donald Trump, because I don't think everybody deserves a defense in non-criminal cases. In criminal cases, they deserve a defense. So I wouldn't have done it if the issue were just Trump. For example, if Trump had been impeached on constitutional grounds, if they had impeached him for uh, bribery, I wouldn't have defended him. Uh, I defended him only because his impeachment was unconstitutional. Does every argument you make on behalf of defending the Constitution have to be an argument that you think is constitutionally solid? Or once you've taken that role, can you just make arguments that you think will work, impeachment being, as we know, a political process? No, I I have to believe in it. And uh, particularly if it's not a criminal case, if it's a criminal case, particularly a capital case, you know, I've done uh, more than a dozen um, murder capital cases, won almost all of them. There I'll do anything, any plausible legal argument to save a man's life, uh, I will make, even if I don't believe in the argument at all. Um, But when it comes to defending the Constitution, I have to uh, believe in it. Uh, look, I, I, I never made the argument that Donald Trump shouldn't be impeached. I made the argument he shouldn't be impeached for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. That was the Dems' fault. They, they impeached him 
on grounds that were unconstitutional. Had they impeached him for bribery, I think they didn't have the evidence to do it. And that's why they didn't do it, because it would have been much easier for them if they did. But if they had had the evidence for impeachment on bribery, I wouldn't have taken the case. For the same acts, for the Ukraine quid, so-called quid yeah. pro quo case. And so even yeah. if you thought that there they didn't have the evidence, you wouldn't have taken the case? You wouldn't have said, well, you don't have the evidence? No, that wouldn't for me raise to the level of rise to the level of a constitutional argument. And I, I didn't uh, really want to get into the facts of the case. Reasonable people could agree or disagree uh, about that. Um, but uh, when they in, when they impeached him on grounds that Madison and Hamilton would have rejected out of hand, um, and when every scholar in the 19th century said you need criminal type behavior, and then Professor Lawrence Tribe and others called my argument bonkers, bizarre, nobody was willing to debate me on the merits. This may be one of the first discussions I've had about the merits of my argument. It became name calling. You are defending Trump. Therefore, you have now been marginalized to the extremes of academia. By the way, thank God for that. I would never want to be in the mainstream of academia today. I'm very happy to be on the margins of academia. I've been on the margins of academia for 60 years, and that's where I'm going to remain until my death. I'm going to be always on the margins of every uh, intellectual and academic issue uh, because that's where I prefer to be. So you never said Trump and you only made arguments that you believe could pass constitutional muster, not just arguments that a jury, the jury of senators might believe. And you also articulated it's a slightly different tactic than what you'd have in a criminal case. But you were also part of a defense team. Right. Did, does that mean that every argument the defense team made was an argument that you endorse as passing constitutional muster? No, that's a, a brilliant question. And um, the reason I didn't become involved, I was asked to become involved in the second impeachment, is because I knew members of the second impeachment defense team would be arguing that the election was fraudulent. And the election was perfectly fair. Joe Biden is the completely validly elected president. Donald Trump is wrong when he says that the election was stolen. So I did not want to be part of any defense that even implied that the election was stolen. The first impeachment, on the other hand, didn't raise any of those issues. It raised issues purely as to what the constitutional basis for impeachment is. So I was very comfortable with the arguments that were made by the defense team. But I, I wasn't really a part of the defense team. I didn't strategize. I'll give you an example. People are shocked when I tell them this. I never showed my speech to any member of the defense team or to Donald Trump. I said, to well, him, that might have been smart self-preservation. Yeah, no, but yeah, you have to trust me. And I'm not going to make the arguments you necessarily want me to make. I'm not going to make arguments about his innocence. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make constitutional arguments only. And that's that's what I tried to do. And of course, I was totally attacked for for doing that. If I had made exactly the same arguments on behalf of President Hillary Clinton, uh, I would have been praised. By the way, Joe Biden is now going to be very possibly impeached if the Republicans take control of uh, the House and they'll impeach him on phony non-constitutional grounds. And I will be making the same arguments on his behalf. I don't think he's going to ask me to defend him because I defended Trump. He wouldn't be it would be a smart thing for him to do, but he's not going to do it. But whether he does or not, I'm going to go into the court of public opinion and strongly oppose any impeachment of Biden as I would any president 
on grounds that are not constitutional. But in that first Trump impeachment, the Ukraine impeachment, there was an argument put forth at least 10 times by my count by your fellow defense attorneys that wasn't as insidious as lying about the election. But they argued over and over again that we're so damn close to an election. You can't possibly impeach now because everyone knows that the impeachment clause is, I guess they were saying, only applicable for the first three quarters of the president's term. They made this argument over and over again. You did not. Are you saying that's an argument that you think passes constitutional muster? No, I don't. I don't think that's a valid argument and I wouldn't want to be associated with it. Uh, Where that argument uh, or something like it comes in to be is where uh, the Republicans were incredibly hypocritical when they wouldn't allow Garland's nomination to go to committee or to the floor because it was eight months before the election and then suddenly they developed moral amnesia when um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and the president just weeks before the election appointed Justice Barrett. That was a stolen seat on the Supreme Court, and it did not belong to the Republicans. It legitimately belonged to the Democrats. So I I don't believe in those chronological issues. Uh, A president can be impeached the day before he leaves office. I don't think he can be impeached the day after he leaves office. But uh, that's been my position. So when they made that argument, I don't know, did you consider quitting? Did you consider talking to them? Did you say you shouldn't have done that tactically or constitutionally? What was the internal or external conversation? I didn't discuss it with them at all. I just made my own arguments, which I thought were constitutionally valid. And I made it clear in my argument that I was not a full-fledged member of the entire uh, defense team, that I was there on behalf of the Constitution. And uh, it's an argument replicated when former Justice Curtis, the only dissenter in, 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 in Dred Scott, who quit the Supreme Court, a very moral man, when he defended Andrew Johnson, who was a horrible, horrible president and put the end of Reconstruction, he made it clear he was not there to defend Andrew Johnson, who he despised and voted against. Um, but he was there uh, only to defend the Constitution from compromise. And um, uh, I see that as, as, as an important part of my role as a professor and as an academic and as somebody who cares deeply about preserving the Constitution. Do you think Andrew Johnson should have been convicted? This is a side question, not brought up in the book, but I'm interested. No, uh, he should not have been convicted based on the charges. They accused him primarily of violating the Tenure of Office Act by firing somebody who had been- the Secretary of War, Stanton. Right? right. Yeah. And the Supreme Court ultimately upheld his right, uh, any president's right, to fire any cabinet member. And we now know that's the law. So he should not have been impeached. The only person who ever should have been impeached is uh, Richard Nixon. And he would have been impeached and he would have been removed had he not resigned. And that's the test I think has to be given. And that is the Nixon test is you got to get people of the opposing of, of the same party to come and say enough's enough. And the reason that Nixon resigned is because very prominent members of the Republican Party said, you have to leave. We're voting against you. That didn't happen in the in the Trump case. There were a few, obviously, Senator um, um, uh, the senator from from Utah, Romney, Romney, Murkowski uh, against yeah. him. My former yeah. my former student, uh, I- even though he congratulated me on my speech, on my on my presentation. But he's a, a man of conscience. And I, I I give him a lot of credit for voting his conscience. On page 32 of the book, you say, I challenge anyone to offer a substantive criticism of anything I did in either of those cases. 
uh, Trump being one of them, that warrants criticism or cancellation. Cancellation, uh, I understand, and you write a lot about that social phenomenon. But I think criticism is valid, and I have to cop to the fact that I did criticize you at the time. And what I criticized you for was making what I thought was a bad argument, a threadbare argument, where you said if a president does something that he believes will get him elected, and that's in the public interest to be elected, then there can't be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Mm-hmm. You were well, talking. You should have. Go yeah, ahead. You should have made that argument. It was a correct argument, except I didn't say that. What I said was, if he does anything illegal or unlawful, mm-hmm. then he can be impeached. I sp- devoted all of my time to saying, if a president commits unlawful or illegal conduct of a kind akin to treason or bribery, he should be impeached. The question I was asked is, what if he just has a quid pro quo that's legal? Uh, and if he has a pre quo quo that's legal, and he believed it's in the interests of, of the country, and I compared it, I was very clear about it, with um, uh, uh, President Lincoln, when he allowed the soldiers to leave the front and go and vote in the Indiana election uh, because he thought that that would help him get elected, there was nothing illegal about that. There may have been something wrong, but quid pro quos are common. Um, uh, uh, I'd mentioned, too, that the day before uh, I made that answer to the question, I had been in the White House uh, uh, commending uh, the administration for whether it was the Abraham Accords or something to do with the Middle East. And I said, I used the example, what if uh, an administration said to the prime minister of Israel, we're going to give you a billion dollars in defense aid, but if but we're not going to give it to you if you build new settlements on the West Bank, quid mm-hmm. pro quo. And that would be perfectly legal. And that would not be a basis for impeachment. Right. But if quid you, pro quo were unlawful, that would be a basis for impeachment. So I'm thinking of the quid pro quo. And that's an, a good example. And of course, you're going to cite a clever example that would flatter maybe the policy interests of progressives not allowing, uh, using a policy objective that might help the president, but also is in the interest of a progressive minded person who wouldn't want settlements, the sort of person who would be uh, in favor of a conviction vote. But Barbara McQuaid was who I'm sure you know, law professor was on my show and she tweaked it a little bit and said, what if the quid pro quo to Israel wasn't you got to stop building settlements was you have to publicly come out and smear my opponent as anti-Semitic without evidence. But that's what you have to do to get our aid. I don't think that violates a law, but I would say that clearly is an impeachable offense. What would you say to that hypothetical? No, it would not be. It's uh, not an impeachable offense. The framers were very, very careful and they they made a mistake. Uh, they shouldn't have said treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Let me give you an example. When Wilson had his stroke, um, he could not be impeached even though he couldn't govern. He was virtually unconscious because the framers screwed up. They didn't put in a provision about that. And they had to pass, obviously, the 25th Amendment, which said if a president has a stroke or is medically incompetent. And the framers probably should pass. uh, The the current framers, the people who want to amend the Constitution, should amend the Constitution to say if a president does something that's deeply immoral or deeply offensive, like saying you have have to find dirt on my opponent, that should be an impeachable offense. But it's not under the Constitution today. And and President Ford was dead wrong, uh, who I really like President Ford. I like the fact that he pardoned Nixon. But he was dead wrong when he said impeachment is anything 
that half of the that a majority of the House uh, wants and two thirds of the Senate agree with. Uh, uh, Maxine Waters made the same comment. They're just wrong. Uh, the Congress is not above the law. Impeachment can only occur if there's treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, no matter what uh, Congress votes. And if Congress votes to impeach somebody on a ground that's not in the Constitution, that person could appeal to the United States Supreme Court. And it's an open question about whether the Supreme Court would say no, an impeachable offense has to be grounded in the words of the Constitution. So what you describe, it's a great hypothetical, and it would be despicable for a president to uh, do that. I mean, of course, there are allegations that, that Joe Biden did that. There, there are allegations that he went when he was vice president to the Ukraine and said, we're not going to give you the billions of dollars unless you change prosecutors and, and put in somebody who's less likely to go after Hunter Biden. Now, I don't believe necessarily any of that well, the, happened. The time, or, Yeah, the timeline doesn't really work out. Well, but, you know, the allegation has been there, and I guarantee you Yeah, but you this, you've had allegations against you, too. Allegations are oh, just allegations. No, but there's yeah. a basis for that. We know that he withheld the billions of dollars. Yeah, he did brag we know about that. that. He did change He's, the prosecutors. He did absolutely so, say that know, at the Council of Foreign basis. Relations. The accusation yeah. against me was by a woman I never met and never heard of. A little bit different. So, um, the uh, but, but, you know, it, it's great having a conversation like this with you because, frankly, this is the first intelligent conversation that I have had about the grounds for impeachment. Everybody else just calls me names. And you've taken me on. You disagree with me. And I commend you for that. And your viewers and listeners will be able to make judgments based on having heard both sides of the issue, not name calling. Alan Dershowitz is the Harvard Law School Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law Emeritus. His latest book, uh, top a pile of 50 or so he's written, is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate your great questions. And I, I want to repeat, this is the most serious intellectual conversation I've had about that matter since it occurred. So congratulations to you for, for hard questions. And now the spiel. Kanye West has been dropped by major sponsors, Balenciaga, and now Adidas, as well as his agency, CAA. Kanye, who wants to be called yay, but also wants a lot of things I don't want to give him, has engaged in a series of interviews and public statements, beginning with his endorsement of the White Lives Matter slogan, defending that as just truth-telling, irrespective of the fact that the slogan has been adopted by white supremacists. As if nothing could be closer to the truth, West then engaged in a series of interviews in which he laid out his anti-Semitic theories for whoever asked or didn't. Everyone wants to shoot the, shoot the messenger. And you look at how your point was going to start. You have to understand. But the thing is, the Jewish people that I'm talking about don't have to understand. And that is that privilege that I'm not going to allow. So the question is, what motivated Kanye or Ye or decidedly, in fact, not at all Ye? West has mental illness. He's been open about his struggles with bipolar disorder, but this has been rejected by some as an explanation for his latest behavior. Uche Blackstock, an MSNBC contributor and doctor, tweeted a week ago, I need as many psychiatrists as possible on this bird app, meaning Twitter, to make it clear that Kanye's anti-blackness has nothing to do with his bipolar disorder. Actor Josh Gad, no snowflake, though a snowman, posted about his grandparents' experience as Holocaust 
Holocaust survivors and concluded, I'm going to make this super clear, Kanye West is a raging fucking anti-Semite. His mental illness is not an excuse for his neo-Nazi propaganda. No, it's not. But it is an explanation. Do I think, without mental illness, that Kanye West would be saying all these things? I do not. Absent his condition, which includes manic episodes during bipolarity, Kanye West would not be spewing this hateful garbage. He would not be saying it. He would be thinking it, however. That is true, I do believe. And that's not good, but one of the things that mental illness can rob people of is a filter. And it also robs people of discernment. A lot of us have thoughts or entertain notions, and then, if we can apply rationality, can reject these notions. Kanye West is not benefiting from that process. It's a very human process. None of this means that a perfectly healthy Kanye West wouldn't also harbor hate deep within him. But it might be, under that hypothetical, so deep that he'd know how to deal with it, either by not mentioning it or by not crediting it. He might not think it. He might not believe it. At the very least, he would not say it. What's better? One question goes, knowing what he thinks or not knowing. This is the mask is off theory that says, well, at least we know where Kanye stands. I don't think that's true. I don't think it's better that we know Kanye's quote unquote true self because one, more hate talk in the world isn't good. Two, gives license to others to engage in their hateful conduct. Three, it's not a true reflection of West absent the wages of mental illness. And four, I think we already pay too much attention to Kanye West. I think so. Healthy Kanye, that guy is a great hip hop artist, but not the public intellectual that America needs. That, of course, is Megan Thee Stallion. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. I don't care if these bitches don't like me, because, like, I'm pretty as fuck.